Discovery is actually the process of me asking you questions so that you recognize what your problem is and how bad it is. I might know. I can say people who sound like you have this kind of business or in this role, blah, 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 have these three problems. But I can't walk in and just tell you that and then show you my product you to buy. I have to ask you questions so that you come to the realization that you have those problems and they're painful and it's worth acting on right now. And then I can show you the product. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Derek Jankowski. Derek is the Vice President of Sales at Service Corps which is a great example of a company that's using software to disrupt an industry that most people think of as decidedly low-tech. We dig into Derek's journey in his sales career, including the start he got in sales in college, and how that ultimately led to his current role, scaling sales at a sales team at Service Corps. We also talk about Derek's passion project, his side venture called Next Level Sales Leadership, which is focused on helping newer sales leaders get the knowledge and skills they need to become more successful faster. You know, most frontline sales managers are craving this type of support, and we dig into what Derek is providing through his venture. We get into all of this and much, much more, but before we get to Derek, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it, and also want to remind you to check out my latest book, Sell Without Selling Out, the modern human-centric framework for increasing your win rates, and shortening decision cycles without using the salesy behaviors that so many buyers hate. The book's available everywhere you shop for books, online, and in stores. So thank you for checking that out. Let's jump into it. Derek, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy. Thanks so much for having me, man. A pleasure to have you. A pleasure to have you. So um, where are you joining us from? Uh, Los Angeles, California. It's 93 degrees today. Wow, here we are. Oh, yeah. End of the first week of April, 93 degrees. Yeah. Yeah, I was just talking to someone who lives out in San Fernando Valley and 103 in his yard. Oof. Ugh. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to this summer. I feel like it's going to be a hot one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the climate change is, is upon us. Um, well, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. Uh, I'm VP of sales at a company called Service Corps. We're a as of today, about a 45-person startup. The company's based in Denver. Uh, we get to work out of a what I think is a really overlooked vertical. So our software yeah, is basically... Absolutely. I think that this is a great example of how software disrupts and transforms an industry. So go ahead. Yes. Uh, so here's, uh, for anyone at home, like think about it like this. If you're driving around and you see uh, somebody building an apartment building or a skyrise or whatever, there's usually a dumpster out front and a porta potty. Whoever owns right. those physical pieces of equipment, th- that's a business. That's an entire business just dropping off, cleaning, and bringing back porta potties or what we call roll off dumpsters, right? Which is different than like commercial trash or something. Right. And, uh, over 60% of businesses in that space literally run their company out of a physical notebook or like a spreadsheet. So and they have all so this we, expensive inventory that's basically dispersed and they're tracking it manually. Exactly. And it and so we, we have a software that lets them easily look up customers, take orders, process the order, 
uh, assign it to a specific driver who can go drop it off or clean it. Um, uh, and also, you know, also pick it up, like all of that, all of the work, scheduling the work and also invoice, uh, plus track all of your inventory, knowing exactly where it is on the map. Um, like often what happens is you just forget that something is somewhere. Literally we have people that sign up with us that just forgot that there's a dumpster that's been sitting somewhere for six months. And that's a ton yeah, so of what's lost the, revenue. Well, think about that. What's the, well, what is, what is the, the average cost of a dumpster? Is dumpster do you know? Uh, yeah, it's somewhere, um, somewhere between three and $600 a month. Loss is what they can charge for it. Is what they can charge for it. And then there's, figure there's about $120 to $150 that they pay to actually dump it out into a, a landfill. So right. 150 bucks to 300 a month in just straight up revenue. That is lost. Times yeah. And I would think, you know, roll off dumpster. Man, it's got to cost a few thousand dollars at least, right? Yeah. I think the they per- start at 1500 depending on the size. And, and it's yeah. going up. Steel's becoming more more precious. Oh, yeah. Right? Than these days. So, yeah, you think about it. And then for porta-potties, I was, <laughs> so I was getting ready to talk to you and researching what you guys are doing. Is, is I just think I live near a a park uh, in downtown San Diego that uh, they hold a lot of events on. Like there was a Blake Shelton conference, con- concert, excuse me, conference, concert on this, this park and easily 200 porta potties or more on various sides of the park. Um, and so I was just thinking about it. It's like, yeah, signing those, keeping track of them, like cleaning them, retrieving them, and being able to deploy them again quickly, right? I would think that that's a huge part of it is if you know where your inventory is and you have track of it, then you can actually sell it more effectively. It's, it's huge. And, and imagine like Coachella calls you and they want a hundred porta potties and you don't know if you have the inventory, you take the order, you, you're short when you deliver, like how angry are they going to be at you? This is commonplace. <laughs> well, the concert goers will be angry at them for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Can't think of anything worse on a hot day on Coachella, but <laughs> there are no restrooms available. Um, well, I just think it's, yeah, it's one of these things that seems very sort of mundane, but yeah, really important. If you operate one of those businesses of which there are many, as you said, construction sites, uh, any sort of, uh, even now in bigger cities, you know, cities are deploying them for, you know, unhoused population and so on. It's, it's really important. Keep track of them. So, um, you look like you started your sales career while you were in college, actually, right? I did. What did you, what were you selling? I that wasn't, wasn't clear. Sure. So, so it's actually really funny. I got a phone call to my dorm room. I got woken up by a phone call to my dorm room to talk about a sales internship. And like I said, yes, in mid sleep and I showed up, I ended up selling, uh, books, actually educational books door to door in Texas that summer. And so, uh, imagine, so you had kids, right? So imagine Cliff yeah. notes, but for school subjects, your son gets stuck on math homework and like the teacher needs it done a very specific way, not the way that you learned it, but you don't know the new way. So these are books you can reference mm-hmm. so that you can help your kid navigate his homework. So for primary and secondary education or mostly primary? Yeah, K to 12. Elementary school? 
You have 12. So, all right. So take us, take us through a sales call. First of all, where were you in Texas? <laughs> uh, let's see. I was in San Jacinto County, which, so it was uh, all outside Houston. So San Jacinto County for a while, which is very rural. And then I ended up living in Sugarland and selling in a, a yep, city yep. called Missouri City. Um, all right. And uh, I knocked on a door. It's kind of funny. I knocked on the door. Nobody answered. And as I went to the next door, I ended up learning that this really huge house I knocked on is where Destiny's Child lived when they were all still together. And so I didn't go back because they didn't have kids, but um, they lived in Missouri City at the time. And, uh, man, it was 20 years ago, so I don't know that I'm going to remember all the, well, all the details. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you were prime demographic for them at 19 years old if you were selling. <laughs> yeah. So... So somebody would answer the door. So, sir, take take me through your pitch. I mean, is is how would you approach it? This, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, people are always a little leery of door to door salespeople to begin with. So, yeah, take us through what it, what it felt like and what it, what you did. Yeah, and I think the key, and and I still teach this to my reps now, is like low, slow smile. So, my name's Derek Jankowski. I'm with the Southwestern company. I don't remember exactly that when. It was something like, you know, we're I'm talking to all the families at uh, with kids at such and such school um, about the God. What do we call it? The Southwestern Student Handbook. Uh, and it's some, you know, I forget. I, you'd ask some question, and then like I'd love to show it to you, and we'd literally point at their door. And then bend over and pick up our bag and just walk towards the door like they're going to let us in. And it worked a miraculously like high number of times. Not always. And we had like a, what do you do in that case? How do you just pull them out into the porch and have them sit down with you kind of thing? But it was, uh, they've not done something like that before. <laughs> okay. So walk to strangers up to a stranger's house. You make a reference to a local school, which I sort of get. I presume the, you know, the initials or outreach was something about dissatisfaction with the local school, perhaps, or? Uh, it's usually like, so it depends on the neighborhood. Like, it, when you're in the neighborhood and talking to families, you typically pick up on the thing. So um, if if the family had older kids, it's usually, you're usually talking about how hard it is for those kids to keep up and mm-hmm. like get into college, right? If they have younger kids, the pitch is usually about how hard it is to help kids, even though you know the subject, but like they have to show their work and it has to be done a certain way, and you don't know how to do that. And so we have this thing yeah. we have to do that. Can I show it to you? New math. And you don't know new how to math. do the new math. The new right. math. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Somebody knock on your yeah. door. Yeah, and so you would, you would, as you said, you would actually, they'd open the door, you'd actually sort of point to the door, like, motioning that you're coming in, and just go. <laughs> All right. Did you sell anything? Uh, yeah, so I would say that I was probably average. Um, like, I made decent money. I did it for five summers. I probably would have not done it for five wow. summers. Like, three would have, I think, been ideal in retrospect. But like right. my best summer, I probably made fifteen or sixteen thousand bucks. So for a summer, 
for a wow. summer. Yeah. And then you, but like you're a 1099, so like you're paying for your gas and rent right. and everything. So you walk, right. I probably walked away with like eight grand or something. Still, for a summer job, kid in college, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's about the um, minimum wage at like a hardware store, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I worked in a slaughterhouse, so it, it uh, had a different appeal to it. <laughs> My yeah, sister, different days. smell, for sure. A different smell, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, to me, it seems like this is the type of experience that everyone going into sales should have. Something similar. I mean, I worked at re- I worked in retail, so selling women's shoes was sort of my my entry into into sales. Not quite like going door to door at all, but um, I just think for when you when you finally had your first professional sales job, I imagine there are fewer surprises for you. Yeah, it's it. So my first professional sales job. So just really quick, I had a second sales job in college where we called alumni to ask for donations, and yes. so. I did that for, I forget, two years, I think. And then I managed a team for two semesters. And then mm-hmm. I went to Dell, you know, Fortune 50 company, but I sold like 60,000 products to businesses. And like that job just seemed easy after those those two, right? right. Got my teeth kicked in, you know, the Texas summers, just like, you know, you sweat through your clothes, nothing you can do yeah, about yeah. it. People being rude yeah. to you, you know, and like working at a company people have heard of, with a product that they like actually care about, it just, it seemed really mm-hmm. easy in comparison. <laughs> oh yeah. Good training. I mean, I no kids. Uh, there were, you know, your age peers of my kids that, um, went with the whole cut cow, cut knife. Um, and similar, yeah, you know, earned, earned good money, but we're going door to door and learning how to sell. It's a good experience. And, the people that I, that did Cutco like really learned how to sell. Like, what's nice about these programs is they actually take you through a formal sales methodology. They teach you to sell mm-hmm. versus a lot of. When you get a sales job today, most companies just teach you how to demo their product. They don't actually teach right. you how to sell it, which there's right. a distinction there. Um, well, so what did you learn in terms of what actually to sell the product? And I think this is a great point because it's like. Your point is like, yeah, they basically somebody's teaching you how to learn how to sell your product, but learning how to sell, you know, the real business of selling is different. Yeah, uh, absolutely different. And so most people, so my most of my post um, college experiences is software, right? Been right. to four software startups, one, two, four, I think, and yeah. um, or four software companies, and it's like. Um, what most people believe the job is, is showing the product, the, but like demo. The demo means, let me, sh- let me just show it to you. But the sale mm-hmm. doesn't happen when your prospects use the product, it happens in discovery. Everything's about discovery. It's about uncovering, and uncovering's not even a good word. I actually struggle with good words to describe this because I'm, I'm spending a lot of time with my team on it right now. It's like, discovery is actually the process of me asking you questions so that you recognize what your problem is and how bad it is. I might know. Sure. Right? To some degree. To yeah. some degree, yeah. Like, I can say people who sound like you have this kind of business or in this role, blah, 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 have these three problems. But I can't walk in and just tell you that and then show you my product and expect you to buy. I have to ask you questions so that you come to the realization 
that you have those problems and they're painful and it's worth acting on right now. And then I can show you the product. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that, that, interesting point to bring up here because I think that, I think unfortunately that's done to an extreme by many mm, sellers where, where discovery is just basically qualification. Yeah. Right? I'm, saying, I'm trying thing. to find whether you're really a fit for what I'm selling. And that lack of curiosity doesn't have value to the buyer, right? Because with the buyer, the only reason they want to talk to a salesperson is perhaps is to say, well, maybe I don't really understand the full breadth and scope of the problem challenge or the challenge I'm facing and really don't understand what's really possible to achieve by addressing this challenge. And that's, that's what they're looking for a salesperson to help them with. Certainly in the B2B world. Yes. Yeah. And so you make a really good point about qualification, right? Because a lot of some methodologies call what I just described qualification. But when, when I hear the word qualification, I think about like, I want to make sure that you have what I need. I want to make sure you're motivated. And so I'm going to check to see if you're already motivated, if you're already looking to solve this problem. And you might not Mm -hmm. be. Like, people tend to show up to demos because, to your point, I'm curious, like, you caught my curiosity, you said something on the cold call that I hadn't heard before. Okay, I'm going to let you talk to me for a few minutes. And then right. and then salespeople are like, all right, so tell me why you want to buy this. It's like, wait a minute, I don't want to buy it. Right? <laughs> T- tell me how urgent this is. For- wait, it's not yet. It's like, qualification occurs when you evoke those problems out of your prospect. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you describe is behavior I talk about in my new book is that it invokes when you, it invokes sort of the persuasion response with sellers, which is their default method of operation is I'm trying to persuade you to buy my product. And as you said, just because someone said, oh, that, that, you know, you piqued my curiosity with that one thing you said. Yeah, I still need to learn. I don't, fall into persuasion mode because what are you trying to persuade me to do? I don't even understand what I'm trying to, what even what problem I'm trying to solve at this point. Right. And so like the, these are like the two extremes. I'm going to talk, I'm going to try to talk you into it or I'm going to measure to see if you're worth my time right now. And it's like the real money. That's what I feel like 80, 90% of salespeople do that or some high number. Like what, Something like, uh, what's the stat? Two-thirds of salespeople miss quota or something? That's the great sales- more than 50%, yes. More than 50%. The great salespeople are the ones who do that middle piece where they're like, I'm not going to assume anything. I'm going to ask you questions. You are going to realize over the course of those questions that you have a really big problem you hadn't been thinking about that much. And now suddenly you feel urgently like you need to solve it. I didn't convince you of anything. I didn't create the problem. It was always there. Yeah, I'm just forcing you to, not forcing, but causing you to think about it. Yeah. In a way that you hadn't thought about before. Yeah. It's the fun part of sales. It is. It is. And yet, um, your point, I, I mean, I was just interviewing somebody previous to this interview, another person. And has done some extensive research, uh, the company she's with, and they were like, basically what they found is average win rates in B2B 
were 17% across multiple industries globally. On outbound, right? That's, that no. doesn't consider inbound. Sales. That considers inbound? Ooh. Inbound on outbound, yes. That's painful. Okay. I yeah. guess I believe it. They <laughs> uh, surveyed more than 5,000 business-to-business decision makers on deals. Wow. So, which is part of the reason I wrote my book is say, look, we're just not getting any better at this. And what do we need to do differently? I mean, what do we need to change? Because I don't know what's, <laughs> I mean, in the SaaS world, those figures aren't, aren't out of the ordinary. The 17% win rates on most qualified opportunities. You know, the, the opportunities in, the, in your pipeline at the start of a month or a quarter. So it's like, okay, we have one of two problems. You know, we either don't have product market fit or we're just not very good at selling our product or service. And unfortunately, yeah. I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter, yeah. Yeah, it, I don't know. I, I think I. one observation that I have is this pressure just to like hire a lot without mm-hmm. just hire. Just hit a headcount goal, irrespective of like if people are adapting and doing what you need them to do, right? Or even we raised a hundred million dollars. A, a fit for what you need to do, yeah. Well, I mean, a question. I mean, you're you hire people. I mean, you're not to put you on the spot, but I mean, a question I often ask sales leaders when they have a conversation about hiring and they talk about what they need and they've got these pressures, you know, to hire people and. And you know, they're looking at their job description and the attributes they claim they need. And so I'll weave in this idea about win rates. I said, so, okay, this is what you think you need to hire. Have you asked your buyers what they need from your salespeople? And there's always this dead silence. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're hiring to fit what we think our needs are, but okay, but actually the... <laughs> Our ability to win is all based on how our buyer experiences us in the sales interactions. So if they have a lousy buying experience with our sellers, don't we want to know what that is? And if we're only closing one out of every five of our qualified opportunities, don't we have a problem we should be identifying and how we can better align with what the buyers need? So I think, hmm, so I haven't heard this idea before, but my, but one thought I have related to this is like, how frequently do we think buyers are going to know the answer to that question? I think a lot of times buyers are going to say, I just want somebody who can quickly show me a product. Buyers don't know that they need somebody with good discovery. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, you don't want to phrase it that way. Because buyers <laughs> don't... Well, but the buyers Fair. don't talk in those terms. This is one of the problems we have is, is that for decades now, this is not a new problem. You know, we envision a selling process as these linear sequential stages. And we know from research from Gartner and others that that's not how buyers buy. They don't buy in linear sequential stages. And, you know, buyer, Gartner had this famous you know, buyer enablement diagram that came out, twenty, I think, 2018. <clears throat> they call it famously their spaghetti diagram because it's this really sort of... <laughs> I don't say complex, but it's this dense 
flowchart of activities that start and stop and start all over again based on introduction of new information. It's, it's anything but linear. Yeah, I mean, when you think about anywhere else in your life, like how often do you make like linear sequential decisions? <laughs> yeah, this is the way we want to sell to people, right? I mean, okay, hey, we've got discovery stage. This, this is my favorite example is the you know, discovery stage. We have exit criteria for a discovery stage. It's like, well, discovery doesn't stop. Discovery doesn't stop. I mean, you're going to discover, hopefully, you're still asking questions up in the time you sign the agreement. If you're in a competitive sale, and which is not unusual in many markets where a customer you know, may start out talking to maybe a dozen vendors and down-select a, a handful, hey, if you asked your questions at the beginning and they're going through this buying process with these other vendors, what are they doing? They're learning, getting smarter, maybe changing their mind about something. Maybe somebody else, one of the other vendors, you know, provide an insight which sort of shifted the, bar- <laughs> the buyer's paradigm that they were thinking about what they're trying, trying to do. But they're not going to tell you that. They're going to come to... Right, exactly. They're not going to come to call with you and say, hey, I I saw a demo here and it changed how I think about all of this. Can we start over? (laughs) That's not going to happen. No, no. They're just going to keep on going. (laughs) I mean, this is is a part with... I think a lot of sellers just don't think about is that you and buyers are making a a purchase decision. Conceptually, we have to think about it is... They don't have one buying process going on. They have one buying process going on for every vendor they're talking with. And they're not all moving in lockstep. But they're also not independent of each other. Not entirely, no. But they're not necessarily in lockstep either. And so, yeah, they're not going to volunteer to you that, oh, geez, most times they won't. We learned something really interesting from this other vendor. Uh, It sort of changed the way we've been thinking about things. It's like, no, if you don't bring it up, they're saying, yeah, these guys, they don't get it. And then on top of that, other priorities in the business, those yep. shift, budget shift, personnel shift. My boss wants something different from me. I have a new boss. Mm-hmm. We just treat it all of it as if it's static. We're picking up where we left off. Yeah. Yeah, it's anything anything but yeah, static. Uh, unfortunately, I think that that is one of the big issues is that where we do a disservice to sellers by, by having them think about selling as being this yeah, linear, static process and the world just doesn't operate that way. It does not. So what do you say to do about it in your book? <laughs> <laughs> Keep asking questions. Um, you know, the, the goal is, the goal, and we touched on this earlier, is, is you're talking about with the demo and I show you a demo and, hey, don't you want to buy? I mean, we set sellers up to basically, quote-unquote, encourage them, if you will, to fall into these salesy behaviors, what I call selling out, right? Is when you put your own interest ahead of those of the buyers, you're selling out. When you do that, you're going to fall into these manipulative, pushy, you know, persuasion-based techniques, quote-unquote techniques, that are all about what you want and not about what the buyer wants. Yes. It's a seller-centered process. Yeah. So we have to shift in the mind of sellers what their belief of what their job is, where it's not to persuade somebody to buy your product. Your job as a seller is to listen to your buyer, understand the things that are most important to them, both in terms of the challenges they face and the, the outcomes they want to achieve, 
and then help them get that. And yeah, if you're persuasion-based, there's no helping going on. And you don't really care about understanding what's most important to them because you've got one job, which is to persuade them, regardless of what's important to them. And I think this is where we get this, this big disconnect, in part, with, um, you know, my book, I quote a stat, I think it was from Forrester, might have been from Gardner, I can't remember which offhand is, is, you know, 80% of C-level execs saying they find no value in the interactions with sellers. And there was another study I read just recently that it was uh, 70% of buyers yeah. saying found no, no value in the interactions with sellers. Um, Would not surprise me if that keeps climbing. Yeah. And then the, another survey of more than 14,000 B2B decision makers said that basically half the time they couldn't distinguish between vendors. <laughs> it's like, this is the problem. It's interesting because do you think people, how likely are people to be able to distinguish between Google and like whatever Microsoft's with Bing is that what they have now? Like everyone can distinguish between those and there are no salespeople involved. Sure. Though, Yeah untold millions spent in, in marketing positioning and so on. Um, I think in the, you know, the B2B world is, is there are so many product categories where there's so many competitors, the barrier to entry is relatively low. You know, if you're competing against, I don't know, if you're selling a CRM system, for instance, I mean, you would think, oh, there's one, there's Salesforce, there's two, there's Microsoft, or it's like, I mean, I, I see new introductions to CRM systems all the time. Yeah. So if you're a small business or yeah, a mid-sized business, you're looking for a new CRM system. There's dozens, literally dozens and dozens to choose from. You've got a salesperson calling on you. So how do they distinguish themselves? How do they differentiate? Right. right. I mean, everybody sounds the same, even from the cold call stage. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, it's part of why I write about the book is how do you differentiate yourself? But it's it's. It takes operating at the level of intention to do so. That that yeah, you know, we don't teach and inculcate you know into the into our sales team. I was just thinking about one of one of my reps and like as we we had this conversation and it was like a light bulb moment went off in his head where he said, you know, we're talking about discovery. No, but like these questions, like this is what you did. This is what, and he goes, oh my god, Derek, I'm just not listening. I'm just not listening when they talk. Hmm. I'm just thinking about what I'm going to say next. And I was like, shit. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Like that one moment is probably going to have more impact on his career than anything else leading up to that point. Yeah. If he learns how to start listening. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's, it's a issue I addressed in my book directly, which is because I was approached by a, Young seller, SDR, after a talk I'd given, same thing, she said, is, yeah, just having trouble listening because I'm really sort of thinking about how I'm going to respond. And and I have simple, simple fix for that, which is that you pause before responding. Give yourself a verbal 
cue, what I suggest people do, if anybody's, you know, <laughs> touch football fan. Remember how we used to count Mississippis before the people could rush the passer? Um, it's like one Mississippi. Give yourself a one Mississippi before you respond. Take a deep breath. Say it verbally. No, you don't have to say it out loud, but say it to yourself. Um, and give yourself a chance to process what the person has said. You sort of force yourself out of this, this you know, sort of preparing to respond mode. And instead, give yourself a chance to say, oh, that's what they said. Huh. Well, maybe what I should do is ask a question instead of you know, defaulting to saying something about myself. Give yourself that time. And that time is really important. You know, it's really, it's, it's a, a function of how you change habits is when you have an impulse to do something is stop and acknowledge that you have a choice to make about the action you're going to take next. Yeah, I think that's really important. I had a rep who used to um, basically change his career by he would mute his phone when he wasn't talking. And so he couldn't interrupt. He couldn't even respond until he reached the mute button again. Totally changed how his conversations went. Interesting. So he was building that pause into it. Yeah. He knew he couldn't control himself. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Take self-awareness. But take self... Well, but that's the whole thing. But use the word before about intentionality is, is... I believe the, the secret to consistent success at sales is being intentional about everything you do. You know, if you're creating a good first impression, that's not just showing up. It's, it's how are you preparing? You know, what are you learning about the buyer? How do you, how do you, uh, you know, be conscious about the perception you're creating in the mind of the buyer? Similarly small things, but you know, we know from science that, that these perceptions that you form first impressions are really, um, you know, it's understand that there really are no small things when it comes to selling. When you're interacting with another person, there are no small things. Is you assume that everything, everything is important, and be intentional about. You know, when you do a discovery call, what are the questions you know prepare ahead of time? What are the questions you're going to ask that are unique to this this buyer? Because you've done a little research, you might have some. You know, if you do that, you might have an insight that perhaps uh, just not like every other one that you, you've been calling on. And that's when you start to sound different from everybody else. Well, I think at the end of the day, and again, that research that shows this, I write about in my book, is that in most cases, decisions, if vendors are all perceived to be largely the same, the differences really boil down to the salespeople and the experience the buyer has with the individual seller. Yeah. It's a big deal. You become the tiebreaker. You as the seller become the tiebreaker. Well, I want to ask you about, uh, so you have a venture next level sales leadership, I guess sort of a side hustle. So what, what's that? Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a program they put together that focuses on first time sales leaders. So, the public-facing content is uh, is the podcast, um, and uh, the non-public-facing piece is a mastermind group. Mm-hmm. So we, um, it is currently paused because I am very close to paternity leave, 
And so my life is just going to be really crazy. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, expected to resume in August or September. Um, we've been doing that about two years. We it's a it's a Zoom call once a week, uh, where people bring the challenges that they're running into as sales leaders, and we sort of speak in a in a safe like private place about how to, mm-hmm. how to handle them. Typically comes with at least once a month. I'll come with like a fifteen to twenty minute presentation on like something I wish I had known. And I, I try to go outside the box, not just like, here's how to coach reps, although that's important, but like, here's how I wish I, I had been managing my time since I became a sales leader. Like what I do mm-hmm. now, like mm-hmm. I rip apart my calendar every quarter and I put it back together based on what my priorities are. Right. Here's how I do it, right? Um, it's been really good. Like the couple of original members, one's a VP now, one's a director with managers reporting to him. Um, mm-hmm. It's been, it's been really good. Well, I like it. Well, I think that that frontline sales managers, first-time sales managers, are the most underserved part of the whole sales ecosystem. And yeah, you know, it's not fair. <laughs> what what happens to many of those people? Because yes, they may be good at selling, but they're put into positions where they're not given the tools and the knowledge that they need or the coaching that they need to succeed. And when their job is fundamentally about helping uh, other sellers succeed, that's, <laughs> they need to be enabled and it's just not happening at a high enough level. So I, yeah, I applaud you for doing that. That's good. A good service. Thanks. Yeah. I, I read somewhere that I might've got this from my friend, Mike too. So, but Something like 80% of, of resources towards developing leaders go to the top. They go to executives who've already been doing right. this for 10 years. So not that they don't need help, but the people who interact with you are salespeople every single day. Deal reviews and coaching and, yep. and all that. Like, don't know what they're doing. Like, I just, I yeah. read a bunch of books, made a bunch of mistakes you know, and just, uh, you know, the number one, I think the biggest thing that made me different is I would, I just like really, um, what's the word? Just transparent, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. So we're just going to try, you know, we're going to try things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good lesson for sellers is there's nothing wrong with admitting that you don't know something and, uh, people give you a lot of credit for that. Right. As so, long as you take the next step, you're like, I don't yeah. know what I'm doing, but I'm either going to find out or I'm going to, going to yep. experiment or I'm going to. Exactly. And, and I think the, the other danger of promoting salespeople is that like the temperament is often different. Like top salespeople, everybody wants to promote the top salesperson to be a leader, but a top salesperson is very often there because they have sort of a selfish mentality. They know where all their deals are. They know what to do next. They work, you know, they push really hard for their paycheck or whatever it is, right? Whereas a leader is ha- has to be selfless. You have to get more out of helping somebody else reach a goal than reaching your own goal. You know, not that the first person can't be a successful leader, but like, it's much easier if you're doing it. You know, the guy who's, uh, the rep who's there already helping other reps, even if they, you know, they, they lose a deal this month, 
they push us next month because they missed a phone call, you know, but like they help somebody else get to their number. Mm -hmm. That person is probably where you should look to for leadership. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I wish we had more time because we'd dive into that more because I actually think that <laughs> that most of the top sellers actually are good because they're good leaders because I think the qualities you have to display to successfully sell are forms of leadership. I mean, think about it. It's, as I talked about before, you know, your job is to listen as a seller, listen to your buyers, understand things that are most important to them, and help them get them. That's your job as a sales leader. Sales leader. Sales leader. My job is not managing the numbers. My job is to listen to you as as a person that works for me. Understand what your goals and your aspirations and and things you think you need help with, and then help you achieve those things. I think they're very. Similar. I would agree with that overlap. I just think before you promote, make sure that that's the reason they're the top salesperson. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Yeah, Derek. Unfortunately, we're hey, gonna jump. This is great. But we'll have you back. <laughs> I would love it. Thanks so much. Yeah. What's what's the best way to connect with you? Uh, LinkedIn is best for me. Just hit me up, uh, Derek Jankowski on LinkedIn. You can also feel free to email me, Derek at DerekJankowski.com. Either of those are okay. fine. Perfect. All right. Well, Derek, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Derek Jankowski, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.